This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, L, A Novel History, and the author is Jillian Becker, and Jillian joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jillian. Good morning. I don't know whether this will go out in the morning <laughs> or afternoon, but good day. Well, good day to you as well. And this book, I don't know how to describe it. I guess in many ways it's similar in scope like Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged and George Orwell's 1984. You say this in just a couple sentences about your book, Revolution Sweeps. Louis Zander, a charismatic philosopher of politics and art known as L, into power as dictator of England. He is also a playwright and theater director and turns the country into the stage of a political tragedy with the whole nation as the cast. Well, that is a good summary, I think. It is. The, it sounds the, like something right out of the Roman Empire with Nero. Not, a very good analogy, Steve, <laughs> yes. So before we get into the characters, uh, about learning about this charismatic philosopher of politics and art who becomes this dictator, tell us a little bit about yourself, Jillian, because you've been writing concerning uh, these kinds of tragic events that could lead to the absolute destruction of even America for, for years. Yes, I, I have. Um, in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, I published a book about the uh, young terrorists of Germany known as the Baden-Meinhof Gang. It was, a, it was a very successful book. It was translated into many languages, and uh, I think it did, it did inform readers and inform it, more than readers, I think, you know, governments took note too, and, and uh, law enforcement took note, that um, it, it, they, it, I, I informed them what they were all about. Uh, it, this was a, a, move, um, a group that grew out of the new left, and uh, they, they uh, grew out of a, a, an ostensibly pacifist movement, you know, anti-Vietnam War, and they turned to terrorism. And that, that was about what my book was about, but there were similar groups in Italy and in France and in Japan, actually. And um, I, it was writing that, was researching that and writing that book that uh, really informed me thoroughly about what totalitarian ideology is all about. I, I read the, the classic works of the totalitarian writers, and I read the history of revolutions in the 20th century. And I, when I finished that book, I began to develop an idea of writing fiction. What if this happened in England? That, that, that's really... I, I, and by the way, I should add that I wrote much more after that on terrorism and, in fact, founded 
and directed an institute for the study of terrorism in London for, through a greater part of the 1980s. So I am very well acquainted with totalitarian ideology and dictatorship tyranny. And this is, this is a fictional version if it happened in England or in some Western country, which so far it hasn't. That, that was my idea. Well, it's a fascinating, unfortunately, a real uh, idea in today's world. It, when we go back to England, Mar Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister, seemed to have England on the road to uh, a type of self-government that would provide England with great prosperity and great freedom, but since then it's just gone downhill just like the United States. Yes, indeed, Steve. That's how I see it, too. In fact, my story in, the, in L uh, takes off from the uh, mid-1980s. It's, it's an idea of what would have happened if Margaret Thatcher had not been re-elected in the middle of the 1980s, if the riots, the miners' strikes, and so on had succeeded, and she had been deposed from power, and a far-left government had come in, and made, uh, uh, made a, an emergency, um, created an emergency um, government of a few people, a sort of what I've called a, a, a council of 12 people, and they, in turn, unable to face the responsibility, because it's a, it's a type of chaos, call in this very popular philosopher of politics, a far-left philosopher of politics, and that is L. And he therefore, although he's simply called Minister of Culture, he becomes dictator. Mrs. Thatcher tried very hard, and she succeeded to some extent in making Britain into, returning Britain to being um, a capitalist country, a property-owning country. She returned Britain to being a comparatively free country. But then, eventually, of course, uh, a left-wing government came in again, and, but not, not the extreme government that I visualize in my book. Um, but here in America, here in America right now, I mean, this very day that you and I are talking, the American electorate, the voters, are having this very choice before them. Do they choose status and big government, control of their lives by government, of every aspect of their lives by government, or do they choose individual freedom, the America that the founders created? That, that is, I think, the choice in this November election, by the time this broadcast goes out, we'll know the answer. What did the majority right. choose? Well, but I see it as a very, very critical moment. Well, it's a study. It's a study of in human nature, isn't it? That's what. How do people who everyone wants freedom, everyone wants prosperity, and yet we're mesmerized by someone 
that seems to have all the answers to, you know, the problems of the world. And we kind of throw up our hands and let somebody else take over. What, what is it? It's a great temptation, isn't it, Steve? It's a great temptation for people to say, if only a government would act like a parent. Right. Give me all the time to eat, you know, clothe me, feed me, house me, educate me, transport me, <laughs> um, heal me when I'm sick. How wonderful that would be. But it cannot be like that. It, 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 personal responsibility goes with personal freedom. You, you can't have the one without the other. And uh, yes, it is a, a critical choice. And, and in the book, of, in my book, I show, of course, I make it absolutely calamitous that uh, that the uh, big government, big uh, um, state control redistribution is 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 what is is chosen. I mean, the 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 left wing government that comes in comes in by popular vote. It then becomes a tyranny once right. they're there. Well, just like Hitler, look at the popular vote for Hitler. Exactly, Hitler came in by democratic vote. That yes, true. it's just overwhelming when we look at history and we don't seem to learn from history, do we? That's right. I mean, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the tremendous failure of socialism that we're, we're seeing happening under our eyes right now in Europe, it is astounding to me that anyone should want to, want to try and establish it in America. It, it's, it's proved not to work. It, it fails, and it fails with, at great human cost and much misery. Right, much that, blood. That, that, is, that is the real... You, you put your finger right on it. I mean, my, my book is a warning, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. <laughs> and this the, is what will happen if, if you do. These are the consequences. And these people who have all the answers to all our woes uh, often turn into the bloodiest dictators, where they just eliminate all peoples who would say anything against them or do anything against them. Absolutely. They're dissenters, they're dissidents, They, they kill them. And even those who they see as any sort of threat who perhaps don't even do much against them. I mean, look at the millions killed by Mao and, the, and Stalin, mm-hmm. yes, and Pol Pot, you know, there's been a whole range of them. There was, um, my book is based on, on a particular communist um, uh, would-be tyrant who came to power in Hungary. Um, there, there was this, this man called George Lukács, who uh, was part of a, of a communist government that came to power in a revolution in 1919. It was a red republic that lasted for only a very short time, and he was a minister of culture. Hmm. And the, it was a very cruel, short but cruel and nasty regime. Of course, once again, Hungary became communist in the late 40s, but uh, that, that was some decades later, after the Second World War. But there, there was a spate of revolutions, communist revolutions, 
in Europe after the First World War. And this character, this man, Lukash, his background, very aristocratic, his occupation, a philosopher, a writer on art, um, his um, mindset, that is what I took for my model for this English right. equivalent called, that I've called L. And the charisma is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we know how enormously popular these people can become. I mean, just think of the French, you know, someone like Michel uh, Foucault, or, um, you know, they're in this country, I mean, they, or throughout the world, someone like Noam Chomsky has this immense reputation as a great intellectual of the left. Now, these, these people haven't actually acquired political power, but uh, they, they like, the, the, they advocate, um, the, um, they advocate communism. Well, which, they, and it's always... Which is the dangerous, the, 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 the Marxist philosophy that L does. Uh, L, of course, makes his own version. It's called Lism, but it's, hmm. it's a, it, is a, it is Marxism. And he actually acquires power. That, that's, that is what happens. Well, like you that say... That's why I say, you know, it's, it hasn't happened yet to the Western world. And I think it's begun to happen in the last four years in America. Yes. You know, that's, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted the book to come out um, now in America. You know, it, to bring out an edition that would... would in the preface, I actually say it has application to America now. Well, and you take the H off of hell, and you're left with L. And that's where we're headed if things continue the way they've been going. And certainly, charisma is really the thing that President Obama and his whole administration, what they have sailed on. That's, they haven't sailed on results. It's been right. charisma. Right. and. You right, know, uh, right. I mean, not not to me, maybe not to you, right. and certainly not to me. But let's face it, there are millions of people who found him a highly charismatic well, character. The, some even described him as if he was some sort of god. Right. Remember, sort of messiah, someone floating above it all um, four, four years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there certainly is a parallel. Also, the, the, the trend of his administration towards ruling by... You know, by issuing um, what I would call just fiats or edicts, and, right. and, and instead of going to Congress, executive um, orders, yes, 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 executive yes. orders, and uh, and the the sort of tyranny that I can only call a tyranny that some of the some of the um, well, let's take the EPA for instance. I mean that. That's a very good example. Mm -hmm. it, it is a tyrannous institution. It's done, in my opinion, great harm. I think the whole tendency has been towards that. He, he spoke of redistribution. He wanted, he said it would be right to redistribute wealth. This redistrib redistribution is socialism. It is. There's no arguing about that. If you're for redistribution, it means you take money from Peter and give it to Paul. You take it from Peter who's earned it and give it to Paul who hasn't because you say that's social justice. But it isn't justice. 
it's the opposite of justice. It's just called it's stealing, immoral. isn't it? It's immoral to <laughs> yes. take money from people yes. who have it and give it to people who haven't, in my opinion, certainly. Well, you're a great philosopher and a citizen of action. We have to uh, really thank you, Jillian, for writing your book, L, A Novel History. How do we get your book? Oh, well, um, it should be available through every um, normal outlet, both in hardback and paperback, uh, very soon now. And, of course, it will also be available as an e-book for Kindles and that sort of thing, um, also very soon now, and uh, at a very, very reasonable price. I hope that people will... I mean, I think every citizen of America should read it, but then I'm the author, so naturally <laughs> I would like that. But I do think it has a message for America now, and I would like it to be read worldwide. That day. I, I think it's a message that needs to, be, to, uh, to, to spread far. Well, thank you so much, Jillian, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. It was very nice talking to you. Jillian Becker, author of her book, L, A Novel History. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, I Will Never Leave You, Memoirs of Surviving Grief Through Spirit Communication. And the author is Reverend D. Massingale, and Dr. Massingale joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Massingale. Oh, good morning to you. 
Great to have you with us. This is a very reassuring uh, spiritual story of love and life after life. Let me read just a sentence that you wrote about your book. I Will Never Leave You is an amazing true story of love between an African refugee and his American mom that transcends the grave and provides breathtaking evidence of the immortality of the soul. Well, we need a lot of reassurance about this thing called death, that there is life after going through that door, don't we? Indeed, indeed. Um, It was something that I always felt in my heart, but never had any reason to be able to substantiate it until my adopted son died, and he certainly took care of that. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, you, uh, Dr. Massingale, a little bit about your background and why you decided to write your book. Well, I have an unusual circumstance. Um, I have no children, no brothers and sisters, and when Marielle, the uh, lost boy of Sudan, who came to live with me um, in 2002, it was just Marielle, myself, and my mother, who was already getting very old. And so I would always say to him, are you going to take care of me when I get old? Because I had this fear of being alone. I literally have no family. Everyone is deceased. And he would always say, I will never leave you. Well, he hasn't. The day after he died, I opened up my laptop to continue to send out emails and communicate with people about this tragedy. He had a car accident and died at the scene. And where my screensaver had always been a picture of a waterfall, which he had put on there for me, I really knew nothing at the time about how to do anything on the computer, my screensaver was his face, a big picture of his face. And like the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I started screaming, oh no, too much, too soon, and started hitting buttons to try to make it go away. And shortly thereafter, a picture of a peacock comes up on the screen, and I thought, hmm, this must be a sign. So I went into Google, and just somehow telepathically, his voice was saying, Google the symbolism of a peacock. And the very first line of Wikipedia said something about it was symbolic of the immortality of the soul. So early on, it was real clear that he was trying to let me know that he hadn't left me, that he was still there. And it just never stopped. These stories, these crazy things that were happening on my computer, in my house, with clocks, with electronics, and then eventually with photographs. I mean, so many stories. I was had to journal it so I wouldn't forget. And um, then my mother died, and then my dog died, and then my godfather and my cousin died, all within a year of his passing. And... Truly, if it hadn't been for what I call spirit communication with that much complicated grief, I don't know, being alone, if I would have been able to pull through. But not only did I pull through, I pulled through with a strength that I never even had before. Because for the first time in my life, even though I'm physically alone, I say I'm not alone because God and my loved ones go with me wherever I go. Yes, I just know. Well, that's very reassuring. Uh, Most people want that. Some, I guess, experience that, or maybe more experience it 
than really talk about it. I, I've often wondered, because I've had those experiences, uh, as we talked before this interview, about my son uh, that was died in a car accident, uh, I guess like Mario. Um, but tell, tell us a little bit about him. Now, he, he was from the Sudan, and, he, and at the beginning he talks a little about his story, doesn't it? In his own words you have in there. Yeah, one of the he was one of the Lost Boys of Sudan, which was a just a very very sad group of young refugees that were separated from their parents when they were seven, eight, nine years old due to the longest civil war that transpired in our lifetime. And he, I didn't know this. It comes out later on in the book. But when he came to live with me, I didn't know that he had been taken as a child soldier which so went against his nature because he was just as gentle as a lamb and, and never said anything um, unkind about anyone, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't hurt anybody for anything. But he had this really tragic life, and he came as a refugee in 2001, and it says all the Lost Boys, they just wanted an education. But his INS card had him at 24 years old, and he kept saying, no, I'm only 17 or 18. But when your card says you're so old, you can't get into school. So that's when I stepped in and got guardianship so that he could go to school. So he always said that I was his angel that rescued him. And I know that his um, love for me really came out of, you know, this woman almost out of nowhere taking this poor boy into her home and giving him everything. Dr. Massingale, now you've had some personal experiences with him that have obviously been without a shadow of a doubt that he's there. You've seen him. Well, yeah, I've seen him five different times over a period of a year and a half, and I'm talking a full-color, three-dimensional apparition, if you will. A couple times he spoke, um, three times he did not. One time he just stood um, in a corner of his room holding his high school diploma, which truly was the happiest day of his life when he graduated from high school. And that seemed like it went on for 10 minutes. The, the peculiar thing about having an apparition, for someone that's never experienced that, they think, oh, how frightening. Well, your adrenaline is going so fast, and you want to speak. You want to call out their name. You, you, But it's like somebody has their hands around your vocal cords. You can't speak. But when it's over, there's a sense of peace that I cannot explain that comes over, or well, that came over me, and then I would just go back to sleep. And then the first thing when I'd wake up the next morning was, oh my God, that was not a dream. And I always know I was awake because, say, the dog barked first or the dog cried or I heard footsteps in the hardwood floors upstairs. It would always be something that would wake me up and I'd sit up in bed and that's when I would see him. But you know what I think is the most remarkable or my favorite stories that are in this book are not even stories. They're the photographs. For an, I call the chapter paranormal photography. Well, I've taken a million pictures in my lifetime, and nothing has been you know, out of the ordinary or that I couldn't explain until a year, almost to the date after he died, his uh, friends and family gathered people from all over the country and even Australia to Atlanta for memorial service. And during that service, and I didn't realize it until you know, like a day later when I looked in my camera, 
the pictures were incredibly distorted. It looked like, like all I can explain is an energy field came through and just completely distorted the pictures. And then a couple days after the service, when I had not touched my camera at all, I picked it up and looked inside to, you know, go back and review the, the family that had been here. And there was, in my viewfinder, this bolt of white light with what I would call an energy field around it where you could literally see energy coming out of it. And my first thought was, my God, I wonder if that's him. And then I looked down at the date, and this is unexplicable. This was in July 2010. The date on that photograph that I did not take was my birthday. It said March the 28th, 2009. And on March the 28th, 2009, he had flown home from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he was in school for my birthday. So that was like he put his signature on this photograph to say, this is me and I'm here for you. And then when I was writing the book, there's a chapter where I'm talking about going to Africa to take all of his clothes and his shoes to his brother so his brother could take them back to the village in Sudan and disperse it amongst the relatives so they could all have a bit of him. And I'm writing about seeing his brother in, before my very eyes, and you're not going to believe this, I mean, but it happened, a picture of me with an orbit, and that's a whole other story, downloaded itself into my document before my very eyes. So imagine, you're sitting at your computer, you're typing, you're writing a book, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, a picture of yourself downloads itself into your document? Well, it, it, it a little bit, you know, freaked right. me out. So I'm I, sure. <laughs> I closed the computer, and I took a walk, and I came back, and when I opened it up, there, there it was, downloaded into my computer. But now my computer is not working. I mean, it, it like was completely fried. I, it, it, the cursor was going all over the place. So I took it to the computer repair place, and he says, oh, well, it looks like you have a virus. I said, impossible. I've only had this computer a month. It's brand new, and, you know, I've got antivirus software. Long story short, computer guy said he had never seen anything that messed up in his life, and it took him a couple days to fix it. And I said, I think the electromagnetic field from my deceased did this. And he kind of looked at me like, are you nuts? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that because I have no other explanation. What happened to your computer? So what do you say to those who don't believe you? I don't care. You know why I don't care? Because I call every single thing that has happened that other people might not explain or think I'm crazy, I call that my little miracles from heaven. And nobody is going to take away my little miracles from heaven. So if someone doesn't believe me, that's their prerogative. But I know in my heart what it's done for me, how it's lifted me up and pushed me through grief, and that's all that matters because I'm sane and stronger than I was before I went through such a horrible year and a half of loss. And I, I really pity people that don't get it. But, you know, everybody can't think the same way. We don't have the same political views um, or religious views. And this isn't, so about, this isn't okay. about, and this isn't about religion. Absolutely not. And that's a, I'm glad you asked that because I have interviewed, I've tried to talk to people from 
every culture, every religion that I could come in contact, and there's, you know, a bit of everything here in Atlanta, and without exception, I can find you a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Jew, a devout Christian, a Catholic, who's had these same experiences and absolutely believe the way I do that the soul is an energy that simply leaves this body and goes to another place, but never dissolves or dies. And now this has led you to your own business where you help people with grief? Yeah, it was weird. I was working as a rehabilitation therapist uh, specializing in fibromyalgia and back pain for 30 years. But when all of this stuff started happening, I I just walked in and quit my job one day and signed up for this doctoral program to study with Dr. Raymond Moody. Um, it's a doctorate actually in paranormal studies and have started a spiritual grief counseling practice and I have a psychomantium, which is a mirror gazing chamber where I help facilitate apparitions of the deceased. And I will tell you, I've been doing this since July and that's not a long time, but I have had every single client satisfied with either hearing, feeling, or seeing some aspect of their loved one in, in that mirror-gazing um, scenario. Now, do you have a website? So if the client leaves happy, you know, I feel like I'm doing God's work, if you will. You have a website for your business called Good Grief? Um, I do. That's www.griefresolution.com. Griefresolution.com. Well, we really have appreciated you sharing with us very personal spiritual experiences, obviously, and you really, I guess it's uh, all in your book. Uh, I will never leave you the title, Memoirs of Surviving Grief Through Spirit Communication, and we've been listening to Dr. D. Massengale. Dr. Massengale, tell us how to get your book. It's available on Amazon.com, AuthorHouse.com. BarnesandNoble.com. Well, thank you very, very much for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right sized, or re engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. 
For more information on Tricia and Living Inspired, go to her website, TriciaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Living Life with Life. And the author is Beverly Lauer Estes, and Beverly joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Beverly. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, This is your story, your testimony, and... We appreciate your passion about this and your willingness to share, especially in writing your book. But let me read just a couple more things that would show a a little bit more about your book, shed more light on your book. You say there is no greater friend anyone can have than the friend that I have. The book introduces you to him in relationship, and it's about a true relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's really all that you could ever want. That's what you have found, haven't you? Yes, it is. Very much so. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and how this book came about. Well, it's, it came about from the fact that I went to Africa that last time and got malaria and died. The Lord raised me up. And when I got home, I was too weak to do much anything, just sit at the computer if I could get to the computer. And the Lord asked me to fill my time. He said, would you write me a book? And I said, if you will do all the doing, you have to title, you have to tell me what to name it, how to sign it, uh, and you have to write the book. You have to tell me what parts of my life, our life together, you want me to tell about. And so he did. Matter of fact, he even, sometimes I'd get stuck on a word when I was writing, and I'd say, what word do you have to use? And he'd tell me. It was incredible. So that's how I got to write the book. You just said that you died uh, because of malaria, and he raised you up. Uh, what kind of an experience, spiritual experience, was that for you? It was life-changing, again, because, you know, he says in his word that he prunes us. Well, he pruned me clear down to nothing. When I got back and began to realize where he had taken me, he took me to a place he called separation from God, the same place that Adam and Eve chose when they disobeyed God. And he said, I brought you here to show you exactly what you, when you do anything without me, you choose this place. I don't send anybody anywhere. You choose it. And so I said, well, how do I get out of here then? If you, if you do it all for me, uh, and I can't do anything without you, how do I get out? And he said, what have I already taught you? And I said, well, to praise you, to break Satan's hold. And so I started praising The minute I started praising him, I was back on earth. And I was just praising him in my hospital bed. Then I, I realized that, you know, it was life-changing because now when I got home, I didn't feel like I knew anything. 
Lord, I feel like I've lo- I've forgotten your word. I feel like, I mean, I still have you in relationship, but that's about what I feel like the only thing I have. And I don't know what to do with this. And so he had me, after I got the book written, he had me start studying the word of God. And I study two to eight hours a day now. And it's incredible things I did not know, like keeping Shabbat. That's the fourth commandment, and I'm not, I wasn't keeping it, so I was in sin. It goes back to him telling, you know, asking him, show me my sins. Well, he has not stopped doing that. So explain that he, commandment to us that you weren't practicing, you weren't doing. and The Shabbat? Mm-hmm. Well, Shabbat means you do it on God's day, which is Saturday, which is the day of rest. And I was doing it on Sunday. And my first thought, well, what does one day make a difference? And he said, do you want to obey me or do you want to disobey me? And I thought, oh, I want to obey you. Boy, I tell you, I found that out. Because it brings blessings. And so I started studying that. It took me a while. I mean, I just didn't do it immediately. It took me a while, and I studied the Word to be sure I was doing the right thing. And uh, now I've been keeping Shabbat now for three months. And then where he talks about, you know, the unclean animals and the clean animals, and I was a big pork eater, and I was, you know, we ate rabbit the whole time our kids were growing up, and those are all unclean animals. And I wondered what, and I've been sick most of my life, just, you know, Never really feeling. I've had 13 major operations. And so I quit eating all the unclean foods, started eating only clean foods. And you know, within just a short time, the Lord healed my body completely. I don't have one single symptom that I've ever had in my life. We're back 35 years ago, 40. And all the little things that malaria left with me, I don't have any of those. And I'm just going, wow, this obedience thing is absolutely marvelous. And, of course, that encourages you to obey him. Why is it so hard, though, to obey the Lord? Why, for many, it's so hard? Because we want our own way. You know, when I share this with somebody, they'll say, well, that's not what he says. And I said, no, that's what you don't want to do. (laughs) I said, because I was there. I know exactly what you're thinking. I know what you're, you're telling yourself. And I said, you can even find scripture for it. But Because I, I said, God says in his word, right in his word, you can prove anything with my word, even if it's wrong, right or wrong. And I said, that's what we do. That's the flesh. We want to do it the flesh way, not the spirit way. And it's it's amazing that, you know, I finally am realizing how much truth there is in obeying him. Just simple obedience. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to know why. You just do it. Because then you begin to realize, hey, this is happening to me, and this is happening to me, and it's a whole much, a lot better. So now I'm well, and I'm on the road to knowing who he is again better. Well, a lot of great Getting things. Getting chopped down was my was my best. You know, sometimes we think things are bad for us, and it's not our best friend. But when Jesus corrects us, it is our best friend. He is our best friend in correcting. He don't love us if he doesn't correct us. So, well, just like a father and mother reprove their child, right? That's right. Absolutely. 
really he is the example of that. But often, of course, who who likes to be uh, uh, scolded, especially when you're an adult? Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Don't tell me what right. to do. I mean, of course, you know that usually starts right about teenage years, but it gets. I think it just grows as adults. Yeah grow in right. their pride. I mean, pride is really the issue, isn't it? It is. It's, it's the sin, period. If, if we sin, it's because of pride. It's right at the very top of the chain. There's no way getting around it. With all these great experiences, uh, these miracles in your life, what would you say is the greatest reward in your relationship with the Lord? Just getting to talk to him. Just getting to talk to him. I can wake up at 1 o'clock in the morning, and we can talk for three hours, four hours, and it's like 15 minutes. And I, I often wonder how come people don't pray, you know, or talk. I don't like the word prayer. I right. like the word talk, like he's a real being. Mm-hmm. And we treat him like he's not. And I began to notice that when I was younger, that how we prayed to him, I thought, my goodness. And so I didn't like to pray in public very much because he says, you know, do it in secret. Well, that's a better way because I can listen to him better. It's listening to him, not us yakking at him. Are we? And another thing I learned about talking to him is I began to realize that when he answered me, he always asked me a question. And so I looked that up, and, and he just about did that all the way through Scripture. Somebody would come to me, and he'd say, well, what do you want of me? He'd ask him a question, and uh, he knew everything, but he still was gentle and kind and humble. And uh, he, just by having this relationship with him, he's taught me all, just a ton of things of the Word that I probably wouldn't have caught if I'd have just read it and tried to figure out what it meant. Even the disciples couldn't do that. And I asked him one time, I said, why can't we, uh, when you tell us something, why can't we understand it? Or in the Bible, we read it, why can't we understand it? He says, because you need the other parts, you need the Spirit. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. He said, there's two parts. And I said, well, give me an example of that. And he said, well, Paul. He said, Paul came, he knew he was one of the greater rabbis of all time. He studied under Gabriel and he knew he and to have study under him you had to uh memorize the Bible completely. And he did. And he said he knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but he said he was coming and killing people and doing all kinds of things. And he says until he met me, his word became flesh. And I said, Yes, now I got it. And he said, you can't understand the Word of God without the Spirit. It will not work. And that's why you make up stuff in your flesh. Decide what it is. And I said, wow, I'm learning a lot. Just, just by talking to him, just by writing that book, I had to talk to him the whole time. So some of that stuff he, he showed me was the first time he taught it to me. And I wrote it down. So we need to continue to ask and seek and knock. Every turn, every minute of every day. And I, well, I'll tell you how I know that, because I asked him one time, I said, well, you tell us right here in your word. He said, pray continually. I said, no, you wouldn't have asked us to do that if it wasn't possible. So I said, teach me how to do that. 
And so he told me, he said, well, the next, tomorrow morning when you wake up, he said, I want you to think only my name. I don't want you to have anything on your mind but my name all day. So at the end of the day, I was exhausted. And I said, how did I do, Lord? And he said, I said, what am I supposed to do next? He said, tomorrow morning, you get up, you do the same thing. You just think my name. So I did. I said, well, I'm not quite as tired tonight, but I said, so maybe I'm making progress. And so I said, now what do I do tomorrow? And he said, the same thing. So I did it the third day, and and uh, I knew that from that time on, I have never not thought his name. He's just on my mind every single minute of every day. Even when I'm talking to somebody, I'm, he's on my mind. And so when when anything, you know, like, well, I think I'll go to town. Is that all right, Lord? <laughs> I mean, you don't do anything apart from him. And nothing. Because he knows if you're going to get in an accident, he knows what's going to happen in the next few minutes or the next hour that you're going to be gone. And he can just make a better job of making a choice for you. It's saved me a lot of grief. We have just about two minutes left talking to you, Beverly. Uh, has he told you anything about the end times? Yes. I think we're off pace with that I th- we, because we don't know what the Jewish people know. When I was in Israel for 10 months, they, uh, I kept hearing about the red heifer. And I would ask the people, and we said, well, we don't know yet because the red heifer has to be out about a year, and they find out whether it's pure or not, or kosher, which means that, you know, Jesus Christ was pure and kosher because he had to be perfect. And the red heifer represents Jesus Christ. So I came home, and I thought, well, I don't know anything about the red heifer. And I kept looking and thinking and seeking and listening and nothing and then I went to Africa for five years and I came back and here was this uh, Jim Staley's DVD on the red heifer and so I ordered it and got it and it was phenomenal I mean it tells us exactly who Jesus Christ is and talks about his sacrifice and and they said that they have well there's a little bit of misunderstanding about some of this I mean not misunderstanding but they disagree on the fact that how many red heifers have been sacrificed. They, somebody says six, and somebody else says seven, and this old next one will be the eighth. And, and Israel has a red heifer right now. That's all. That's probably right now three years old. And that's if they're still pure and kosher when they're three years old. That's when they get to sacrifice them. And they say that this red heifer will be the beginning of the end. I mean, not the beginning of the end, but. Uh, it will bring back Jesus Christ. And I'm going, wow, we we haven't even heard this. We have no like, one clue about all the things I've heard and read, the four different uh, techniques or whatever you want to call them that they say is the end times. Uh, this one doesn't even match them. So we're getting that, very close. I'm thinking, I'm thinking we're off the base. Mm-hmm. And we're getting very close. Yes, we are. You we are. And and I you know, and I don't want to stand before him with mud on my face of the the fact that I didn't obey him. And besides, you know, the Lord has to bring Israel back as one stick. 
because a stick is represented the olive tree and it broke and, and the ten tribes went off all over the world and nobody even knows where they are. But the scripture says most of them will end up in the West. Well, if you know, with that information, why would I be against Israel? I am Israel. Mm -hmm. I don't even know it. I mean, we're really stupid sometimes. <laughs> Not because we want to be, but because we haven't read and, and we haven't studied and nobody else has either to tell us the difference. And I tell you, I when I started listening to the Jim Staley's DVD on the Red Heifer, it was just like the Lord picked me up off of my chair and brought me over here to my desk and said, you order everything Jim Staley's got. I said, you've never allowed me to do that. It's just been you and me. And I, I take my Bible and my Hebrew and Greek, and I look up everything and ask you about it, and you teach me. The Holy Spirit teaches me. He's my teacher. And he said, this man does the same thing you do. So I called him, and I ordered all 12 of his tapes. Now I've ordered three more because he's got some more out. But that's just the way he studies. I mean, he doesn't let anybody tell him except the Bible. And he lets the Bible interpret the Bible. And it makes a world of difference. We've been listening to Beverly Lauer Estes. She is the author of her book, Living Life with Life. Beverly, tell us how to get your book. Well, I think you can get it through Author House. And I think it's on uh, Facebook and blog and Twitter. And from there, I don't know. And, of course, you can order it on any online retailers, book retailers. You can just ask for it, and they will get it. Uh, living Life with Life. Beverly, thanks so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you for calling. 